Hello, and welcome back to The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we'll be talking about the Ummah's third caliph, Uthman bin Affan. We'll cover his long reign thematically instead of chronologically, as there is a lot to talk about. He'll get three episodes for three themes. In this one, we'll discuss his lands and governors, in the next, his internal policies, and in the last, the chaos that led to his end. Incidentally, you can think of them as the good, the bad, and the ugly. So let's get started with episode 9, Uthman bin Affan. Let's begin where we usually do, with a short backstory. Uthman was probably born in 579 AD, making him older than Omar but younger than Abu Bakr. His father, Affan, was a very wealthy merchant of the Umayyah clan of Quraysh, which, as you may recall, was the one most closely related to the Prophet's Hashemite clan, and as such, vied with it for preeminence within the tribe. Such lineage meant that Uthman was pretty much Meccan aristocracy. He was good friends with Abu Bakr and was converted by him in the early days of Islam, so when he was in his late thirties. Upon his conversion, he married the Prophet's daughter, Ruqayya. Some sources report a crush Uthman had on her, and others that the marriage was intended to improve the Prophet's standing among the Quraysh, and subsequently their stance on Islam. If that was indeed one of the motivations, then it didn't work. But Uthman used his considerable wealth to help his fellow Muslims when they were being persecuted by the rest of the tribe, even partly financing the first migration to Aksum, which he undertook with Ruqayya. His trading business flourished in Aksum, and he returned to Mecca in time to immigrate with the rest of the community to Medina. Uthman was undistinguished militarily and missed the Battle of Badr tending to his sick wife, who passed away shortly afterwards. Muhammad then married him to another daughter of his, Umm Kulthum, honoring him uniquely in the eyes of the Ummah. He fled when the Quraysh routed the Muslims at Mount Uhud, and unlike most other early companions, he was never entrusted with the command of an army, raid, or siege by the Prophet. Before the Muslims took Mecca, his contributions to Islam were mainly financial. He grew his caravan business further in Medina and spent generously in service of the faith. His clan's high stature among the Quraysh made him a valued diplomat whenever the Prophet had to negotiate with his tribe, and he was the one sent to talk to them when the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was first worked out. Uthman's diplomatic skills came in handy when the Prophet took Mecca. His relatives had been especially nasty to the early Muslims, and many of them numbered among the dozen or so that the Prophet had not included in his general amnesty. As he walked into the house he'd left behind in the city that day, he found hiding inside a foster brother of his, Abdullah bin Abi Sarh, who begged him to speak with the Prophet on his behalf. His unforgivable crime? Abdullah bin Abi Sarh had converted not too long after Uthman, made the pilgrimage to Medina with the Ummah, and was even a secretary for the Prophet there, a position which had him transcribing some verses of revelation. He chose to turn his back on his new community, however, went back to Mecca, and boasted that he was the actual author of Muhammad's purported word of God, claiming to have altered the material whenever he found it to be lacking. To the shock of many, the Prophet pardoned Abdullah bin Abi Sarh at Uthman's urging. 
Uthman spent his fifties and early sixties serving the first two caliphs, and his own reign began at the age of 65 in 644 AD. Today, we'll be taking a tour of the caliphate, examining its major provinces, and noting the changes each underwent during the third caliph's reign. We'll start with Egypt, conquered from the Byzantines by Amr ibn al-As a few years earlier. It seems like within a year of its fall to the Muslims, the city of Alexandria refused to pay the tribute it owed after having been reinforced by some Byzantine naval forces. The Arabs still had no navy to challenge the Byzantines, as Omar had explicitly forbidden them from building one, and of course the sources don't agree why. Some reference Omar's no water nor bridge between the caliph and his people remark, others that Omar was scared of seafaring as boats he'd sent to Aksum had once drowned. Just a note, there was no invasion of Aksum as the Muslims looked favorably on that empire for having sheltered them when they were being persecuted by the Quraysh. Omar's boats are reported to have been sent in response to some pleas for help from a number of Muslims living there who said they were being targeted by bandits. Anyway, Amr is said to have marched an army of 15,000 to Alexandria, easily defeating the meager forces that had been sent to it by the Byzantines. He proceeded to punish the city by looting parts of it, taking much wealth and enslaving a number of its inhabitants. In episode 5, we noted different tellings about the original fall of Alexandria to the Arabs, with some saying it was peaceable and others that it was bloody. Everyone agrees on how bloody the aftermath of this battle was, making it more likely that the city had not been dealt with aggressively the first time around, and that the stories that say otherwise may have mixed up the two assaults. In any case, after the battle, Amr ibn al-As asked the caliph for permission to send one of his commanders, a Abdullah bin Abi Sarh, to continue raiding in the west. The caliph granted the request, even sending some reinforcement from the peninsula's Bedouin. Abdullah began his first westward march in 645, a journey which took him along the Mediterranean coast through Byzantine Carthage. One of our classical Arab sources states that when the mandatory fifth of Amr's plunder reached Medina, the decadent amount of wealth and large number of slaves angered Uthman, who wrote a letter deposing his governor for his excessive cruelty and instructing him to install Abdullah bin Abi Sarh as his replacement. This story is not relayed in many other sources, however, who cite other reasons for the caliph's appointment of his foster brother to such a powerful position. Al-Tabari, for example, places the timing of this event a couple years after the retaking of Alexandria, making the booty an unlikely cause. He instead relays that Amr and Abdullah accused each other of withholding from the treasury, and Uthman sided with Abdullah. Whatever the case may be, Amr, furious, complied with the orders and returned to Medina, where his relationship with Uthman would only get worse. The loss of Egypt had severely weakened the Byzantine Empire's hold on its other African provinces, and Abdullah bin Abi Sarh's raids on them proved both successful and profitable. In 647, he won the Battle of Sufetala, where his victory over Gregory the Patrician, a rebellious Byzantine official, produced much booty and was one of the last nails in the coffin of Byzantine power in Africa. Arab sources are in a rare state of agreement when they report that Byzantine Africa, which we now know as Tunis, treated with the Arabs for the sum of two and a half million dinars, over eight and a half tons of gold. Towards the end of Omar ibn al-Khattab's reign as caliph, Amr ibn al-As had the Qurayshi commander of his, a Uqba bin Nafi'a we'll be hearing more about later, march south along the Nile with a force of between 10 and 20,000 men. They reached Dongola, 
the capital of a Nubian kingdom in northern Sudan, and suffered heavy casualties in a battle they lost to its defenders. Ten years later, Abdullah bin Abisar returned to Dongola with a smaller force intending to lay siege to the fortified city. Sources do not agree on how the whole thing went, but Abdullah did emerge with a treaty that's referred to as the Bakht, which sounds like an Arabic corruption of the Latin word pact. The details we have about this treaty reveal it as the first time the Arabs established peaceful diplomatic relations with another state. The treaty signed between the Arabs and the Nubian kingdom of Makuria would go on for over seven centuries, making it by some measure the longest lasting in the history of mankind. When Uthman became convinced of the usefulness of a Muslim navy, Abdullah commissioned locals from Alexandria to build and man ships for the defense of the African coast. He is widely considered the commander of the Arab navy when it won its first ever naval battle in 654 AD off the southwestern coast of Anatolia. The Arabs dubbed it Battle of the Masts because they'd never seen so many ships. Al-Tabari writes that the Byzantines had five to six hundred ships, and since losses were heavy on both sides, we can assume the Arab navy was at least as large. The Arabs report tying their boats together, sailing into the enemy, and fighting with swords and spears. Even with their many casualties, the Arabs decidedly won, and the Byzantines were no longer the supreme power on the Mediterranean. Some Byzantine sources report that the Arabs went on to lay a naval siege of Constantinople after their victory, something entirely unmentioned in the Arab sources. It is improbable that such an event would be forgotten or overlooked, and Byzantine historians, writing a century or more later, probably simply confused the aftermath of this battle with a naval siege on their capital that took place a few years later. There isn't much else to report about Egypt and Africa, and Abdullah bin Abisarah remained in his position as governor until the end of Uthman's rule. Although his raids along the Mediterranean coast were successful, they never evolved into anything more substantial, and Alexandria remained the caliphate's westernmost city. Let's turn now to the Levant. Under Omar, Greater Syria was still divided into the four districts originally laid out by Abu Bakr, Damascus, Homs, Jordan, and Palestine. You can see the breakdown in Map 1, but be sure to read the caption. Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan governed Damascus and Homs, and when Omar's governor of Palestine passed away in the first year of Uthman's rule, the caliph added the district to Muawiyah's. The next year, the governor of Jordan fell ill, and again the caliph placed the district under Muawiyah, uniting the whole province under the governor. Like I mentioned in episode 7, there are different versions of events here, but they're all pretty similar. Another telling has Muawiyah governing Damascus, Jordan, and Palestine before Uthman came to power, then being assigned Homs by the new caliph to complete his control of the province. There is no straightforward answer as to why the caliph chose to give Muawiyah so much power. Some cynically point to the close blood relationship between them. Their paternal grandparents were brothers, making them both proud Umayyads. While this kinship no doubt did go a long way in engendering trust between the two, it certainly helped that Muawiyah was also an exceptionally competent governor. His administration was efficient, he cultivated strong ties with the populations he governed, and he used their taxes to fund armies which repeatedly raided the Byzantine frontier. This not only kept the caliphate's enemies on the defensive, but it also made sure that Syrian armies were always well-trained, and it gave Muawiyah's authority legitimacy as a military commander. Although Muawiyah did not have a reputation among the Arabs as a fierce warrior in battle, 
he had taken an active role in military affairs since first marching out of Mecca with his brother at the order of Abu Bakr. This extensive experience in matters of war, coupled with his natural skill for administration, made him a force to be reckoned with. He organized attacks against the Byzantines twice a year, with a regularity that eventually earned them the seasonal titles of Saifa and Shatiya, or summer and winter raids. We are told that in the first year of Uthman's reign, Muawiyah asked the caliph to send him more men, and 8,000 men from Kufa were transferred to fight the Byzantines in northern Syria. A couple of years later, he succeeded in taking Antioch and Tarsus, pushing Arab borders with the Byzantines further into Anatolia. He was as combative on sea as he was on land, and it was Muawiyah who convinced the caliph of the need for a navy. He commissioned the seafaring Greeks and Lebanese living along the Mediterranean coast to build and man over 1,700 ships. In the following decade, he used this naval force to raid Sicily, conquer Rhodes and Cyprus, and team up with Abdullah bin Abi Sarh's Alexandrian fleet to defeat the Byzantine navy at the previously mentioned Battle of the Masts. And so it's clear that during Uthman's reign, Muawiyah pretty much single-handedly ruled the Levant. His style of governance was more classically tribal, and he relied on alliances with many a local patriarch or patrician. However, his mastery of the political scene at the time meant that those men rarely presented a counterweight to his power, and were instead little more than pawns eager to win their governor's favor. Although the sources are silent on troop numbers, I would estimate his total to be near 40,000 warriors spread among the four garrison towns. One final note on the situation in Syria before we move on, the garrisons there were established close to major urban centers. This meant that there was more mixing between the Arabs and the settled populations there than elsewhere in the caliphate. Even Muawiyah himself lived among the locals, residing in a palace in Damascus. Now that we've covered ex-Byzantine provinces, let us talk about the lands conquered from the Sasanian Empire. When Heraclius left Syria for Constantinople, he took his empire into survival mode by pursuing policies designed to avoid another all-out encounter with the Arabs. For example, he emptied the Taurus Mountains of their few inhabitants, creating a buffer zone between his empire and the caliphate. Also, Byzantine armies now followed guerrilla-style tactics against the Arabs. Instead of attacking them in full force, they would form small raiding parties and try to ambush the invaders whenever they found them in compromising circumstances. The Shahanshah's approach was the exact opposite of the Byzantine emperors. Yazdegerd could have retreated east across the Zagros Mountains and tried to shore up support for his regime there so he could properly defend his realm. He could have done this after the disastrous loss at Qadisiyya, after the fall of the capital Tesaphon, and even after the defeat at Jalaula had cemented the Arab conquest of Mesopotamia. Omar was serious about halting the caliphate's expansion, and that would have given the Sasanids precious time to prepare for any wars to come. The young Shahanshah, however, was convinced that fighting was the best way to win, and his continuous raids into Mesopotamia eventually led Omar to go back on the offensive. When he did, the Arab armies seized one province after another, starting with Khuzestan in the southwest of Iran. After their victory of victories at the Battle of Battles at Nahavand, the Arabs took Isfahan, Hamadan, and Rai, all in central Persia. They proceeded north, conquering all of Tabaristan, Azerbaijan, Albania, and Armenia. While there were a lot of men and treasure involved, there wasn't much fighting in these conquests. Local populations couldn't match the size or morale of the Arabs, 
and so the Muslims would mostly just have to show up to win a treaty. It is right after these conquests in the Caucasus that the Arabs lost their caliph to the assassin's blade. Check map 2 if you're curious about the different provinces of the Sassanid Empire. When Uthman came to power, the newly established military cantons of Kufa and Basra were the two centers of Arab power in Mesopotamia, or Iraq. We should feel grateful to have some estimates of the sizes of the two armies as Arab sources are not always interested in these details. Al-Tabari reports that there were 40,000 warriors in Kufa, a quarter of which would serve on active duty each year. Since the two military cities were established at the same time, there is no reason to assume Basra was any smaller or larger than Kufa, and it must have housed a similar number of troops. The men in these cities were almost all Arabs, either Lahmids, Mesopotamian Arabs, Yemenites, or from the nomadic tribes of the peninsula. There were a few thousand Sassanid troops, mostly from Khuzestan, who had switched sides and now stayed in Basra. Despite everyone staying in the same city, the tribe remained the overarching marker of identity, and the cities were split into a number of districts that accommodated their men along tribal lines. Yazdegerd's sustained raids against the caliphate ensured that the resistance the Arabs faced from their Persian population was by far the strongest from among the many peoples they had subdued. The survival of the Byzantine Empire meant that loyalists living in Syria or Egypt had somewhere to go after their lands were conquered, and there they could find an emperor trying to limit further confrontation with the Arabs until his realm was secure. Sassanid disunity before the invasion of the Arabs, a consequence of the loss of their last war with the Byzantines, meant that their forces had disintegrated into many provincial armies loyal to ambitious local commanders. Unable to come together in a meaningful way, they faced the Arabs separately, and either lost in battle or treated with them in order to avoid disaster. Arab sources give the impression that conquering the various Persian provinces was much easier than quelling the repeated rebellions of their inhabitants. As we've seen from the examples of the two territories we already covered, the new caliph did not see much value in halting the caliphate's expansion. At first, he merely ordered the armies of Kufa and Basra to continue their pursuit of Yazdegerd. He was in the province of Pars, and for the first five years of Uthman's reign, the Arabs steadily chipped away at it. The city of Istakhr, the Sassanid Empire's original capital where the Shahanshah was staying, bore the brunt of this offensive and is said to have lost over 40,000 defenders when it fell. Shortly after that, Uthman wrote to the governors of the Iraqi garrison towns, promising them that the one who captured Khurasan, the easternmost province of Iran where the Shahanshah had taken refuge after fleeing Pars, would get to govern it. This generous promise fueled the pace at which the Arabs gobbled up the remaining provinces of the Sassanid Empire. But conquering Khurasan was no small request. It was the second largest province of the Sassanid Empire and was distant from the other lands the Arabs had taken. Khurasan was in fact so remote that even the Shahanshahs themselves had trouble subduing it when it rebelled against their rule or when it was overrun by the nomadic Turks that surrounded it. It had fielded its own candidate for the throne when Yazdegerd was chosen in faraway Tesaphon, and its nobles were not entirely cooperative now that the Shahanshah was there, demanding money to raise new armies. Many refused, some outright telling him to try and make peace with the Arabs, but he kept moving further east, looking for others who would help him reclaim his empire, 
There are conflicting accounts of his last few years, both within and outside of the Arab sources, but they agree that his final stop was the city of Meru in modern-day Turkmenistan, a city fated to become pivotal later on in this podcast. Some histories have him flee to China first, only returning to Khorasan to resist after the Arabs had taken it, while others say he was in the province all along. In some, he comes off as a haughty 21-year-old who still doesn't understand the situation he's in, and in others, as a precocious leader facing an impossible task. He must have despaired of ever convincing the Khorasanis to fight for him because he reached out to the Khan of Fargana for help, the chief of a nearby Turkic people. Here, tellings diverge so much that the only lesson we are left with is a sobering reminder of how tenuous our grasp on this history really is. Some say there was a battle with the Arabs in which the Turks abandoned the Shahanshah, leading him to flee back to the city. Others say that nothing came out of his requests for help and that he then wrote to the Emperor of China, who also ignored him. Finally, there's an account that says that the nobles of Khurasan conspired with the Turks of Fargana to fight the Shahanshah together in order to rid themselves of this presumptuous young man who thought he still had a throne. Despite the many differences in opinion, all sources agree that the Turks of Fargana weren't any help and that Yazdegerd was assassinated in Meru by a local in the year 651. The Arab armies took the city soon afterwards, and following a few more battles against local nobles and nomadic Turks, they conquered the rest of the province. The credit for the conquest of Khurasan went to the new governor of Basra, a young Umayyad named Abdullah bin Amir. Some sources cite his youth as the main reason he was chosen by Uthman, reporting that the caliph only appointed him after receiving many complaints about the governor of Basra being too old. Other, less sympathetic sources point to his age as an insult to all the more experienced non-Umayyads who may have taken his place. This type of polarized commentary on Uthman's decisions is unfortunately common in Arab history, starting in even the earliest sources. Whatever his original motivations were, there is no doubt that the caliph chose the right man for the job. Despite being only 25 when he was appointed commander, Abdullah bin Amr proved to be way more effective than the other military leaders. He skillfully exploited Sassanid disunity by making generous offers to local powers, only going to battle as a last resort. Even his journey to Khurasan is said to have been guided by a Persian nobleman who was thankful for being allowed to keep his estate. The Uthman did add the province of Bahrain to his young kin's charge, which greatly increased the resources at his disposal. Ultimately, his youth and close relation to the caliph shouldn't count against him. He conquered and pacified many Sassanid provinces and was largely responsible for the especially important Arab victories in Pars and Khurasan. He was much loved in Basra for all the money he made its troops and requested among the Arabs for both his lineage and achievements. The governorship of Kufa proved to be a much thornier issue for Uthman. I won't get into it today, but next time we'll talk about how he had to change his top man there four times, twice due to local discontent. As far as we're concerned today, the city's army played its part during the conquest of the Sassanid Empire and was now responsible for the lands to its north, Mesopotamia, northern Persia, Azerbaijan, and Sassanid Armenia. Its men patrolled these areas and tamped out rebellions, which usually took the form of a refusal to pay taxes. The Arabs would show up, make sure the taxes were paid, the troublemakers punished, and then they'd go back to their cities. 
Othman's reign led to a sizable expansion of the caliphate. He had played an important part in motivating the conquests of the Sassanid Empire to the east, but in Syria and Egypt it was his governors who took the initiative. At first they would ask the caliph for permission, later gaining the confidence to act autonomously as their own powers grew, but we'll get into that in more detail next time. Check map 3 to see how the realm of Islam expanded with each leader. The Roman numeral 1 refers to the Prophet, the 2 to Abu Bakr, the 3 to Omar, and the 4 to our man today. Take note of this map. Apart from some minor expansion across the Oxus River in the easternmost part of the Caliphate, there won't be any growth for a while. Next time, we'll talk about what was going on within the Caliphate during Uthman's reign. I've hinted at some discontent, but so far all of the achievements we've covered make him seem like a pretty great Caliph. More lands, more money, stronger, provincial government. What could go wrong? Let's get into it together next time on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. (laughs) 